0: All right, man, if you are uh, a recipient of God's saving grace and you know that because of his kindness, like Phil emphasized earlier, that uh, because of God's mercy and kindness that you can approach his throne today with acceptance and love by your Savior, can you just say amen this morning? And we praise the Lord this morning for his saving grace and his kindness towards sinners like us. Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you now to take it and open it up to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. That's where we're going to be today as we get into God's Word. I I want to talk to you today about something called the providence of God. The providence of God. The providence of God is a uh, it's a theological phrase that's used to describe an important truth that we see throughout Scripture, and that important truth is this, it's that God directs and governs all things to accomplish his perfect will. In other words, God works all things out for his good purposes. That's the providence of God. Um, We see the providence of God when things in our lives that, you know, just kind of seem like they're maybe problematic or difficult, painful, um, when we can kind of look back in the rearview mirror of life and we can say, you know what, God was up to something good there. Uh, The classic one for me is uh, I look back on my life and I am very grateful that uh, all the breakups that caused me pain ended up leading me to my wonderful wife, right? Men in the room, amen on that? Okay, there we go. Um, You know, but we think about all these things that are difficult in life sometimes that end up, God uses them for for good things. All the moms in the room who have ever gone through the the pains of childbirth and contractions and then whoo, soon suddenly you have a child, like God makes it purposeful. Uh, We talked a a couple weeks ago as we went through the book of Acts chapter 21. We talked about how sometimes God uses our painful path to give us a ministry platform. Because the things that we go through that are so difficult and hard, God can work through those things in order to help us comfort the next person with the comfort that God gave us as we went through those trials. Um, God works all things out according to his perfect providential Plan in all of life's in all of life's problems. We can say it this way: in all of life's problems, God has a good purpose, and that is what the providence of God is all about, and that's what our passage today is all about. Today, we're going to continue on in our study in the book of Acts, and we're going to pick up in Acts chapter twenty-three. We are well on our way into this uh, historical narrative account of the development of the early church. By the time we get to Acts chapter 23, so many important things have already happened. Uh, Acts chapter 23 is the kind of coming towards the tail end of the book of Acts, but these critical events have happened. Like Jesus, you know, has died. He's been buried. He was resurrected from the grave. He sent his disciples out on the Great Commission saying, hey, I want you to be my witnesses. Starting in Jerusalem, you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The gospel has been going out to the Gentile world all through our study in the book of Acts, mainly through the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Uh, By this point in the book of Acts, he has completed three missionary journeys, and now he's making his way back into Jerusalem. And when he's coming back into Jerusalem, if you remember our previous studies, uh, the Lord told him and others prophesied over him that trouble awaited for him in Jerusalem. Uh, It was going to be difficulty for him there. And so, nevertheless, the Apostle Paul said, I want to follow God's will. He knew God's will was to take him to Jerusalem, even though that was going to be a painful path for him. Now, let's remember what we just studied in chapters 21 and chapter 22, because they both kind of blend together. In chapter 21, a Jewish mob uh, really tried to rise up and kill Paul after making some false accusations about him and his disregard for the Jewish law. In order to kind of uh, spare Paul's life, one of the Roman authorities, a tribune named Claudius Lysias, stepped in and broke up the mob, spoke to Paul, and ended up giving Paul the opportunity to speak and address the mob in front of him. And so chapter 22 was all about Paul speaking to this mob crowd and sharing his story with them, sharing his testimony. And if you remember, one of the things that he shared with them in his story was not just that God saved him, but that God had called him to go and preach about God's saving grace and the truth of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and to take that message of Jesus out to the Gentiles so that they could become part of God's people. And if you remember, the Jewish mob at that point did the really weird thing of taking dust and just throwing it up in the air, right? And if you remember, Phil Wing so perfectly and dramatically acted that out for us last Sunday, right? Um... You know, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but did you know that Phil actually uh, was an aspiring actor when he went to college? Like that was, his, you can start to see it come out in, when he preached last week. Uh, as much as I love my brother and the, um, you know, kind of the joking and camaraderie we have, I do have to say this. I've been in ministry with Phil for 20 years. I've heard him preach many times. I just thought last week's sermon was such a blessing. You know, uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. I um, And so I'm grateful that we get to pick up on where Phil left us off last week in Acts chapter 22. So Paul is sharing his testimony with these Jewish crowds. And when he's sharing his testimony, remember he was speaking in Aramaic to them. And so the Roman officials who spoke Greek probably had a hard time understanding anything about what he was saying. So when, you know, all these the mob was getting so upset the Romans like didn't really know why. And so they they call Paul in and they're like, okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna start flogging you, we're gonna whip you with with whips and and torture devices until you tell us what you're saying that's making this mob so angry. Well, they bring him into the barracks, they're about to to flog Paul, and right before they started, Paul appealed to them as a Roman citizen and said, hey, you know, don't break the Roman law by prematurely punishing a citizen without a proper trial. And so after speaking with the Roman authorities, the leaders basically decide, okay, hey, we're not going to beat you today, but we are going to call a trial tomorrow morning with you and your Jewish accusers, and we're going to see then if there's any need to punish you. So that's where we left off, right? Paul is in the middle of a problem at the end of chapter 22, and that problem Continues into chapter twenty-three, which is where we're going to pick up today. So here's how we're going to work through today's message. Today I want to just teach verse by verse all the way through the whole chapter of Acts chapter twenty-three. So I got thirty-five verses to cover today. All right, uh, pray for me that we make it through before lunch. All right, so we um, we're going to preach through this whole chapter verse by verse. At the end, uh, I'll bring in some personal application for us. And surprisingly, I only have one application point today. right, I know Phil had like five application points last week. Today, one application point for us. And it really ties in to the big idea that I believe the Lord wants us to see in giving us Acts chapter 23. And here's the big idea of this passage. During life's problems, remember God's providence. During the problems of life, remember the providence of God. That's what we're going to see in this chapter. So let's look at it together. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Paul is on trial before the Jewish council. The Roman authorities are there as well. And here's what it says. And looking intently at the council. Like I just imagine the Apostle Paul with that preacher stare, you know. It's just intense. He's looking at him and he says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all conscience, in all good conscience up to this day. So what Paul is stating right up front is that he is innocent of the charges that have been brought before him. If they were asking him, how do you plead? He would say, not guilty. Because remember, they had charged him of two things. They said, Paul, you've been traveling around telling these Jews who live outside of Jerusalem that they don't need to follow the Mosaic law. And not only that, Paul, but when you did make your way into Jerusalem, you brought one of your Greek friends into the portions of the temple area that were reserved only for Jews. And so these accusations have been brought against Paul. In our previous studies, we've shown that Paul hasn't done either of those things. They're false accusations. And so Paul says, no, my conscience is clean before the Lord. Now, when you hear and read the Apostle Paul saying these words, all my life, you know, I've lived with a good conscience before the Lord. Don't think that Paul has this prideful kind of self, kind of arrogant view of his own life where where he thinks of himself as never sinning. That's not what he means. The Apostle Paul understood that he was a sinner. You know, he would write Romans chapter 7 where, you know, he he says, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Woe unto me. Like, he understands that he's uh, a sinner. He actually writes to Timothy later on in one of his letters, and he says to Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Right, So Paul understands that he's a sinner. Can you imagine being the Apostle Paul, spending your life as a missionary, but remembering your pre-conversion days where you would walk around from city to city, dragging Christians out of their home, throwing them in jail, having them endure beatings because they love Jesus. Can you imagine having the vivid memories of standing by and watching as your Jewish friends and leaders literally murdered one of the first Christians named Stephen. These are the memories that the Apostle Paul carries around with him with his life pre-Jesus. He knows that he was a great sinner. But here's what he also knows. The Lord Jesus is a great Savior. I hope this morning that as you've come in here today, I hope that you know our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you come to know him, he cleanses your heart, he forgives you of all of your sins, and it means that you can have a clean conscience before God. All the sin that haunted you and continue to come before you in your mind and in your heart and in your conscience, all of that can be cleansed. It doesn't mean that, like if you, if you have your conscience cleansed before the Lord, it doesn't mean that you've never sinned against him. It just means you've been forgiven. And when you're forgiven and you know the God of the universe has set his affection on you, not because of any good that you've done, but like Phil said earlier, but because of all the work of Jesus. Because of Jesus, I'm saved, forgiven, have purpose in life, on my way to heaven. When that hits your heart, the natural response is, now you want to live for him. You want to worship him. You can't hold back. You want to help the world know him. And Paul has experienced that. Now he's been changed, forgiven, had his conscience clean before the Lord. And The truth is that even before Paul's conversion, he was actually a very religious man who in his own mind back then thought he was doing what pleased God. Even before he was saved as a Jew uh, that had not yet believed in Christ, he was all about the law of God and trying to implement it and live by it in his own life. So he's trying to share with this Jewish mob. He's like, I've never just kind of uh, brazenly disregarded the law of God you know, I've tried to actually follow it my whole life the best I knew. Paul is saying that his conscience was clean before God. Now, that does not sit well with the Jewish council. Look at verse 2. It says that the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Like, I just love how, like, Candid the book of Acts is sometimes. Ananias didn't like this, so he told some guys, punch him in the face. Like, which is funny to me, because Ananias is like, you know, the the high priest of the Jews. You'd think that this guy would not just react like that, you know, Uh, but he tells guys, just strike him on the mouth. Can you guys imagine if this happened in our church service right now? Like, what if one of you came out to talk to me after church, and, and I didn't like what you had to say, so I just called one of our deacons, John Diamond, and I was like, John, slap this guy in the mouth, right? If I did that, like, You'd be out of our church and I'd be out of a job, right? Like, that's just the way it would go down. Now, flip it around. Imagine if you didn't like something that I said, and so you came up and you had you yourself or you had somebody else strike me on the mouth. Like, I know that as a godly man, I'm supposed to remember the words of Jesus, like, turn the other cheek, right? In my mind, I'm going like 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26, where Paul says, I fight. <laughs> Not as one beating the air, right? Like, I'm, we're gonna throw down right? Like, that's what would be in my heart. I wouldn't actually strike any of you, okay? Maybe, I hope I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. <laughs> that would be my reaction, probably, but I don't know what was going on in Paul's heart, but I, I, I find it funny the way that Paul responds. Like, look at Paul's response in verse 3. So, Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewash wall. Like, Like, you guys are laughing and smiling because somewhere inside your unsanctified heart, you love this, (laughs) right? This is funny to me. He says, you want to strike me? God's going to strike you. And then he calls Ananias a whitewashed wall, which I think is, you know, just kind of reminds me of when Jesus would uh, say to the, the Pharisees. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Jesus said during his ministry, you are whitewashed tombs. You look clean on the outside, but inside you're dead. It reminds me of the words of Ezekiel the prophet where um, Ezekiel prophesied and said there are going to be these leaders that are going to be coming into Jerusalem and they are going to be like whitewashed walls. The walls of Jerusalem he referred to that were actually broken down but they had kind of been plastered and painted over so that they looked good on the outside but inside they were falling apart. This is what Paul is saying to Ananias, he says, you're making yourself look good on the outside, but that's just a cover-up for what's really inside of you. In other words, Paul is saying to Ananias, hey, you're a hypocrite. And he goes on to explain exactly how Ananias was acting hypocritically. So he says this, he says, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So Paul is, is saying, Ananias, you're about to try to apply the law to me but you're not even willing to apply it to yourself because here's the thing. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, and the law of Moses, there was um, a prescription given that before you could enact a punishment upon anyone, they must go through a trial and then have a legitimate conviction. And yet here Ananias was acting like he was just willing to disregard that portion of the law in order to bring a punishment on Paul before Paul ever had a trial. So Paul's question is like, who's actually going against the law of God here? Ananias, you know? So Paul calls him a hypocrite, a whitewashed wall. And as you can imagine, Ananias did not appreciate this very much. Neither did the people with him. So look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, those who uh, stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So it seems like right here, the apostle Paul kind of realized that he had done something wrong. Um, He he quoted God's word. He's actually quoting Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, where the scripture says, uh, you shall not curse a ruler of your people. And so Paul admits that he had spoken in this manner uh, against him. And he says, I shouldn't have done that, which is interesting to me because what sort of accusation is Paul under from these Jews? They're saying, Paul, you disregard the law of God. Well, even right here, when he realizes that he broke, himself, he broke the law of God, now he's upholding it by saying, you're right, I shouldn't have done that. The law of God tells us not to do that. So he's actually upholding the law of God that he's accused of disregarding, and he explains that he didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. Now, some people would ask the question, how could Paul possibly not know that Ananias was the high priest? I mean, he was raised in his childhood education in Jerusalem. He was trained as a Pharisee. Uh, you know, he, he was a Pharisee at one point, would have been running around with the religious rulers in Jerusalem. How would he not have known who Jerusalem's leaders were, like Ananias? And here's what we have to remember. I mean, there's different plausible explanations, but maybe one of the most obvious ones is this. A lot of time has passed from, you know, the time Paul was a, a religious leader in Jerusalem to the events that we're reading about here in Acts 23. You know how much time it's been? It's been approximately 23 years since Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 to the events of Acts chapter 23. So so Paul had not spent much time in Jerusalem during that season of two decades or so, a couple pit stops during the uh, Jerusalem council and maybe another time where he stopped to visit the church there. But Paul might have known that there was a man named Ananias as the chief priest um, but that doesn't mean he knew who Ananias was, or even if he knew who Ananias was, man, it's been twenty perhaps over 20 years since he had been in running around with these religious leaders, because let's be honest, it can be hard to recognize people after 20 years, can't it? Just go to a family reunion, just go to a high school reunion or college reunion. You look around, and you're like, I went to, who is that? Like, I went to high school with that person? Man, they look different. What we forget is they're looking at us saying the same thing like, oh yeah, you know. I uh, I went to a, a funeral a couple of years ago and uh, at that funeral I was looking forward to reconnecting with some of the guys that I used to be in a band with all these years ago. And, um, you know, I go to this funeral and, and I and I see our, our bass, the former bass player in our band and I go up to him and I'm like, hey man, it's great to see you again. And he looks at me like, mm, I'm sorry, uh, who are you? I'm like, dude, we were in a band together. Like we saw each other every day for years. And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, here's what I realized in that moment. Like um, 20 years in ministry can do a number on you, right? <laughs> make you bald, make you gray, make you unrecognizable, right? Like that's kind of just the way it turned out for me. But it can be hard to recognize people after like 20 years, you know. That's, I think that's probably what's going on here with Paul, even if he had known Ananias before or maybe had never met him. He just didn't recognize him. Now, it doesn't matter really if Paul recognized him or not because he admits that he was wrong for saying what he said, even if what he said was true, which as a little side note of application, can we all just remind ourselves of that right now? That just because something is true, it doesn't give us a permission slip to say it, okay? Okay? Uh, you can speak true things and still be gossiping, right? You can speak true things and still be not uh, not speaking them in love, right? So just because, look, can we just get that out of, our, that excuse out of our vocabulary where like sometimes we'll be confronted on whether or not we should have said what we said and a lot of times we'll try to excuse it by saying, yeah, but it's true. Like, okay, no, that that's doesn't give us a permission slip so paul even though he's saying it yeah it's true you're acting hypocritically ananias you are acting like a whitewash wall he he shouldn't have said that because god's word tells him don't speak evil of your leaders that way in other words paul knew that he should show respect for the office even if the officer was not respectable i don't want you to be confused about ananias Ananias was not a good guy. Maybe you can be confused about it because we've been introduced to three different Ananiases in our study through the book of Acts. Uh, the first Ananias was like in Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they lied, right, to the apostles and then like they died. That's Ananias number one. Ananias number two, Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul gets saved and converted and he comes into Damascus and a man named Ananias like cares for him. Well, here we have Ananias number three. And this Ananias is the high priest in Jerusalem at this time, right? So apparently, like, Ananias is just, you know, it's like the modern-day, like, Mike. Like, everybody just has that name. Like, oh, there's Mike's everywhere. There's Ananiases everywhere. Lots of Ananiases. So we got to remember that this Ananias, the high priest, you know, he's, he's not a good guy. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian— would later write about Ananias and he would tell us how much the Jewish people themselves didn't like him. Uh, they, they talked about him as being a, a harsh leader, um, about him being cruel to people, about how he would steal like um, extra amounts of the tithes that the Jews would give and he would keep some of that money for himself or how he would um, use that money to, to pay off people for uh, political bribery or military bribery at times. And and so the Jews ended up like really hating this high priest so much that later when there was like a Jewish revolution, some of these early Jewish revolutionaries, they actually assassinated their own high priest, Ananias, in AD 66. So this is Ananias, the high priest. He's a bad guy. And Paul knew that God's word told him to respect the office even if the officer is not respectable, which really makes me want to talk for a minute about our political climate. (laughs) But I won't, (laughs) at least not today. But I will say this, guys, we are about to go into, um, we're about to go into election season again, and it's always hostile and tense and I just want to ask us, like, can we be a church of people devoted to the Lord that we don't forget that we are Christians when the next election comes around? Okay, now, I know I'm kind of stepping on some people's toes whenever we talk about politics. I I will say this, like, pastorally speaking. Guys, let's remember that our first loyalty is to the Lord and to His word has the ultimate authority in our life. The last time I checked, God's word told us to honor the emperor to pray for our governmental leaders. And I really believe deep in my heart that if all of us would go into this next election season devoting in our heart to spend at least as much time in God's word and in prayer as we do watching our favorite news outlets or listening to our favorite news podcasts, I think we would go through this in a much more Christ-like way. So that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. We'll come back to it later. Um, So Paul is saying, you know what? I should not have spoken ill of the leaders that God has put in front of me. He says that I should have, I should have kept that part of the law. And he's actually upholding the very law that he's accused of disregarding. So these next verses are interesting because Paul is right in the middle of this really tense and difficult situation. There's not a really easy way out here. And so he does something that I think is pretty prudent, um, he, it says this in verse six. He says, "Now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducee, that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, "Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial." And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So Paul realizes that in the midst of the council, there's these two opposing parties. Group one, Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Group two, they're all about the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul kind of says, hey, Pharisees, I'm one of you. My dad was one of you. And I believe in the resurrection of the dead like you do. In fact, remember, what did, uh, what did he just get done preaching in Acts chapter 22? He had told his story about how Jesus Christ, who had resurrected from the dead, had met him on the, the road to Damascus. And so he's saying, it's because of that belief that I'm on trial right now. That's what really put me here. So Paul identifies with the Pharisees in their belief in the resurrection of the dead. And of course, you know, they... They're they're kind of split now. This suddenly gets all the Pharisees on his side. Verse nine. Verse nine says, "Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him?" Which again, I just think the Book of Acts is funny and like its candid like descriptions of things because they were previously ready to declare Paul guilty before a trial. Now some of them are ready to declare him innocent before the trial. They were previously ready to say, he's preaching heresy. Now they're saying, well, he might be delivering a message from an angel. So Paul basically gets the Pharisees on his side, and the Pharisees are more passionate about their anger toward the Sadducees than they are about Paul's enactment of the Jewish law. And so Paul prudently kind of turns them against each other and kind of gets the attention off himself for a minute. You'd think that things were about to suddenly become safe for the Apostle Paul, but it doesn't exactly go that way. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. Now, you got to imagine the Apostle Paul is a little disturbed at this point. People want to literally tear him apart. They're fighting over him. They want him dead. He knows that half the group kind of maybe is on his side a little bit, but the other half now, they're really angry. And the Romans are kind of caught in the middle of it all, and they're supposed to do something with Paul. So he's been taken back to the barracks, and I have to imagine he's pretty nervous just sitting there waiting. Like, what's going to happen with these Roman authorities? So let's see what happens. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Guys, I, I, this is my favorite part of the whole passage. Paul is struggling. He is hurting. He's under pressure. People want to harm him. Paul's got a problem. And in that problematic moment, precisely in that moment, the Lord shows up to him. And I love that the scripture says, The Lord stood by him. Believer, when you're going through your problems, do you remember the Lord stands by you? He is with you. The Lord stands by him. The Lord speaks to him. The Lord is present with him. The Lord makes a promise to him. The Lord shows up. And this is the fourth time in our study in the book of Acts. This is the fourth time that the Lord has shown up and spoken to the Apostle Paul. The first time was in Acts 9, When Paul was traveling on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, the Lord shows up, speaks to him, and converts him. You study later on that uh, in Acts chapter 16, while Paul is in Troas, when he didn't really know where to go next as a missionary because the Lord was closing doors elsewhere, he doesn't know where to go. And God shows up and speaks to Paul in the vision of the Macedonian man. You get to Acts chapter 18, Paul is in Corinth, and there's this united attack from the Jews to try to shut down Paul's preaching. And in that moment, God shows up to Paul and says, Paul, preach on, because I have many people in this city who are mine. And then we have here, Acts chapter 23, this situation in these Jerusalem barracks where God shows up and he speaks to Paul and he says to him, Paul, you're not going to die here because you've been faithful to your your witness of me here in Jerusalem. I'm going to get you to Rome. God, like, isn't it amazing to you how in in our most problematic, painful, sensitive moments, it's like God has a a special way of showing up right in those moments with with his presence and his promises. Right in those moments. And if you are here today and you're going through a problem of some sort. Things are difficult for you. Not just like your general day-to-day problems, challenges, but I'm talking about a unique series of circumstances that are difficult. If you're a believer, I believe God is going to show you his presence in the middle of your problems. He is going to make his presence known to you, remind you of his promises. We'll talk more about that at the end. But as we look at the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that God has a purpose for Paul in all of this. In all, of God, in all of Paul's problems, God has a purpose. In other words, God is a God of providence. He's going to work it all out. Now let's start to see how God works it out, starting in verse 12. It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul now therefore you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and, when, uh, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near so there's the scandal going on there's this scheme like over 40 men are getting ready to you know, take Paul's life but God has a purpose in all of Paul's problems God made a promise you're not going to die here I'm going to get you to Rome Let's see how God works it out. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Uh, guys, Paul had a sister? Like, I, you know, there's these little facts. Like, I, most of us probably didn't know that. Well, Paul had a sister, right? And Paul's sister had a, a son, Paul's nephew, Paul's nephew is awesome, right? Look at what happened. He's a great nephew. He somehow gets into the barracks. Sneaky little dude somehow. Gets the info, goes and tells Uncle Paul what's going on, right? I don't have a sister. I don't have a sister, but if I did have a sister, I'd want her to have kids like this. Just little spies looking out for me, right? So this is Paul's awesome little nephew. So Paul's nephew told him about the plot, and, and here's what Paul did. Verse 17. So Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. Verse 19, so the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him but do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink till they have killed him and now they are ready waiting for your consent so the tribune dismissed the young man charging him tell no one that you have informed me of these things guys isn't this this is one awesome nephew like, it really is, man. It's like this young man saved the day, right? So I'll just say this. I've got some nephews that go to this church. If I ever end up in prison for the sake of the gospel, I'm expecting Jonah Hamilton and Tommy Hamilton and Silas Wing and Gibson Wing and Walker. I'm expecting all you. This is, I want nephews like this, you know? Awesome kid. Now let's see what the Tribune does. Verse 23. Then he called to the centurions and he said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. The third hour of the night is like 9 p.m. So they're getting ready to kind of sneak out at night with the Apostle Paul. He says, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So I want you to understand historically what's going on here. The tribune, whose name is Claudius Lysias, is sending Paul away to Felix the governor Felix the governor of Judea the whole region he lived in the city of Caesarea which is like 65 miles north of Jerusalem and Caesarea is like this capital city of Judea and Claudius Lysias is sending Paul by armed escort with 470 soldiers to take him from his somewhat secure location in the barracks to a you know a whole entourage of armed you know guards taking him off to the next you know city where he was going to be here you know god promised paul god promised paul just like you've witnessed for me faithfully here in jerusalem i'm going to make sure you get to rome you see how god's working this all out he's working out his purpose in the midst of Paul's problem. And he's using like 470 pagan soldiers to get it done. I love it. So these 470 soldiers, they're they're following the orders of the tribune. He needed, the tribune needed to explain what's going on to Felix the governor. What's the big deal with this one guy who's showing up with a whole slew of armed guards, you know, as as, a group that's escorting him. So Let's look at verse 25 and see what Claudius Lysias did. Verse 25 says, He wrote a letter to this effect Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, the Governor Felix Greetings. This man, talking about Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So that's the letter that Claudius Lysias wrote to Felix. And it's kind of summarizing all the events that we've read about in chapter 21 through 23 here, except it, of course, makes himself look great and act like he never made a mistake in this whole process, such as, you know, how he almost flogged a Roman citizen unjustly. But this is his letter. He writes it to Felix, and the soldiers have to give it to him once they arrive with Paul. Now, let's read verse 31 through 35 as we come to the end of our chapter. It says, So the soldiers according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to uh, Antipatris. Now this, Antipatris is a city that's like halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. So it's like 30 miles north or so of, of Jerusalem. They stop overnight there. It says, and on the next day, they returned to their barracks. That's talking about some of the soldiers. And they let the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province Paul was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, right? Cilicia is the region where the city of Tarsus is, where, you know, that's Paul's birth city. When when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he says, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, I don't know if you know what a praetorium is, but a, a praetorium is a place of residence that's usually reserved for somebody who have who has kind of a high position of importance or authority. And here it's referring to Herod, you know, the Roman ruler. It's his palace. So history and archaeology share with us some things about Herod's palace in Caesarea. A nice little note about it is that Herod's palace in Caesarea, it had this big porch that went out toward the sea. Beautiful. And there on that porch was a huge, massive pool where people would either swim, or just relax right there, or, or bathe. So here's what's kind of funny to me, as I envision all this occurring. The, the Jews wanted to kill Paul in Rome. God said, or in, the Jews wanted to kill Paul in Jerusalem. God said, I'm going to get you to Rome. While getting you from Jerusalem to Rome, I'm going to give you a pit stop in Caesarea where you can stay in a palace. You're going to get there by, you know, you don't have to walk. You can ride on a horse. You're going to be escorted by like 470 guards for half your trip. And you're going to get there and you're going to stay in this praetorium with an oceanfront view and a pool where you can just sit down and drink Arnold Palmer's and wait for your accusers to show up. I mean, God's working it out, right? I, and here's what you're going to see. Next week when uh, we start to get into the further chapters, even when his accusers show up and try to You know, stop this. Like, they're not going to stop God's plan. God's going to get Paul to Rome. We're going to cover that next week. But here's the point for this week. Paul had problems. But God always had a purpose in Paul's problems. God's purpose here is to get Paul to Rome. Why? Because if you could get the gospel to Rome, you could get it out to the rest of the world because Rome was the center of the Roman Empire. What is the whole point of the book of Acts? The whole point of the book of Acts is... That God is working through the power of the Holy Spirit to make his apostles be his witnesses to get the gospel from Jerusalem out to the rest of the world. That wasn't an easy process. It wasn't a simple process. It was a difficult process at times. And the apostles, as they bore witness to Jesus Christ, they had problems. But what have we seen all along? God always has a purpose in our human problems. So that leads us right into our one application point for today. Here's our application. One takeaway. During the problems of your life, remember the providence of your God. During the problems of your life, remember the providence of your God. I want to talk to the believers who are in the room today, and I know that that's the vast majority of all of you who are here. You would call yourselves Christians. Listen to me, brothers or sisters in Christ, what sort of problems are in your life today? Do you come in here bearing a problem? I mean, I'm not talking about just kind of the regular... Problems of life, but some of you are going through some things where it is obvious that circumstances and events are kind of coming together and and it's a unique season of difficulty for you. Listen, if that's you, whatever it is, know this God will work out your problem for a good purpose. In our text, Paul had a mob form against him, people wanted to tear him apart. He got thrown in jail, he even got slapped in the mouth. But it was right in that moment that God showed up in a special way in Paul's life. He showed up and he stood by Paul and he spoke to Paul and he gave Paul his presence and he gave Paul a promise and he said, take heart because I'm going to get you to Rome. You know what's interesting in this story about Paul? Paul was in prison in Jerusalem Earlier in the book of Acts, we read about how Peter at one point was imprisoned in Jerusalem. It's very likely that Paul and Peter stayed in the same jail area. And isn't it interesting that God's presence in the midst of Peter and Paul's problems, God's presence and God's purposes didn't always have the same result. Because with Peter, God showed up for the purpose of deliverance. But with Paul... God showed up for the purpose of endurance. So whatever your problem is today, I don't know what God's purpose is going to be in your problem. He may deliver you. He may help you endure. I don't know his purpose, but I do know that he is present and I do know that he has promises you can depend on. you may not know how your problem is going to work out, but you know who is going to work it out. Believer, the God who is going to work out your problem today is the God who works all things for good according to his purposes. The God who is going to work out your problem is the God who says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. The God who is going to work out your problem is the God who says, I will strengthen you and I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. The God who is in the middle of your problems is the same God who showed Joseph, hey, what man intends for evil against you, I've intended for good all along. The same God who's in the middle of your problem today is the same God who allowed his own son, Jesus Christ, c- to go through the most terrible of problems, his own crucifixion. And in the middle of it all, that God was working to provide salvation for mankind. He is up to something good even in the midst of your problem. So believers who are in the room during the problems of life remember the providence of God. This, my church family, like my brothers and sisters in Christ, like this, this is what's going to carry us through the difficulties of life. When you are walking through it, this is what's going to get you through that you realize that God is good and he, he will always do what is good and right. And he will work all things out. This is what will carry you through every one of life's difficulties with hope and joy and confidence in God. If you're in a problem, I'm praying that you will remember the providence of God. Now, that's for believers who are in the room. Now, some of you who are in the room, you may not be believers yet. And so problems come and go, and you know, you you have to walk through life's problems, and if you're honest, you probably don't have any hope. There's nothing in your heart that resembles peace or joy or confidence in the midst of your problems. And that's because for you, in your mind, there's never any purpose behind human problems. So many people in our culture who don't believe in God and have never trusted Jesus Christ and then have a personal relationship with God, they just go through life and they're like, you know what? Life just life just kind of happens. And, and there's, there's fate. And sometimes you just get these seasons of bad luck. I'm here to tell you today, like, There's no such thing as luck. There's God, and he's working things out. He's got good purposes through it all. So nothing should show you that more. Nothing should convince you of that more than the biggest problem in history, which was the killing of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yet the biggest problem in history, in the midst of it, God was providing the best solution in history, He was making a way for the salvation of mankind, for the salvation for sinful people like me and sinful people like you. God has a providential purpose in every one of life's problems. So if you're going through problems today and you really don't have any peace in your heart, it may very well be because you really, you may not know the Lord. You may not have him in your life, but I want to tell you today, you can have him in your life. You can truly experience his presence in your life day by day, moment by moment, season by season, problem by problem. And once he comes into your life, man, so many things start to change. But one of the things that changes, it it changes the way that you view life's problems. Because he starts providing for you this peace that you never had before, a type of peace that passes all human understanding. The type of peace That sees problems as having a purpose. And that's the type of peace that God gives to those who are saved. So maybe today needs to be the day of your salvation. The Lord God sent Jesus Christ to die on Calvary's cross, to take the punishment for sin that you and I deserve. And Jesus died on that cross, taking the punishment that we deserve. So that we can be forgiven and not held accountable for the sin that was so wrongly done in the face of God, it can be forgiven simply by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you and paid the price for your sin. And when you believe about uh, when you believe upon Him, your conscience becomes clean, just like the Apostle Paul said, "I have a clean conscience before God." If you're not saved, you probably have uh, a guilty conscience before God. You probably have a great fear of dying. You probably live with this ongoing. A sense of nervousness about what happens next and the judgment that is to come. When you know your sins are forgiven and you're accepted by God because of Jesus, all that goes away. Your conscience can be clean before God, just like Paul's. And that, it's not that you become sinless, it's that you become forgiven. It's not that you stop being a great sinner. It's that you've come to know the great Savior. So today, if you've never done so, repent of your sin. Ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sin and commit your life to following him. You'll be saved. And the problems in your life won't stop. But you'll have the peace of God the peace that comes with knowing that every one of life's problems has a purpose, a purpose that is designed by our good God. So during the problems of life, remember the providence of God. Let's pray. Lord, we stop now. We praise you as our God of providence, working all things out. You know the end from the beginning. Working it all out in your sovereign omnipotence and your perfect goodness to work it all out. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are saved, who are in this room, they worship you, they love you, they know you. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Your spirit confirms in in their hearts right now that they are indeed yours. And yet, right now, life is hard. I pray, oh Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would comfort them with the reminder that you are our providential God that will work everything out for good. Let them take comfort in that, Lord. And let them believe it in the deepest part of their heart, even when it's hard. And Lord, it's easy for me to pray this right now when life is relatively easy for me. Maybe many of us in this room don't have major problems going on. Lord, help us believe that you are a God of providence now, So that when the difficulty comes, we can stand firm on this truth in the future. And Lord, I pray for anybody who's here right now who, they don't have peace in their heart because they don't know you. They've never had their conscience clean and started a relationship with you. They've never experienced your goodness in a way that they've recognized And so, Lord, I pray right now for people who may need to repent and believe and receive you as their Savior and start living with you as their good God, residing deep in their heart. So, Lord, meet people right where they are. We know that your presence is here. Remind us of your promises and help us trust you as our God of providence. I pray all this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.